Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Hello and welcome to episode 81 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. It has been a bumper week for financial crime news this week, with all areas competing to outperform one another in terms of producing the most volume of material. Leading the way in a fairly packed field are fraud and sanctions news stories, but there's also a good deal of money laundering news, as well as a host of content on cyber attacks. I guess it's just been one of those weeks. Let's pray that it all settles down next week. As usual, I've linked the main stories which I flag in the podcast right there in the description. Now, we'll start with sanctions, where it has been an incredibly busy week. Just when you think they couldn't churn out anything else, out pops another story. This week's sanctions news starts in the United Kingdom, where Following a decision of the United Nations on the 20th of October, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation has announced an amendment to its Haiti sanctions regime and issued a new general license for legal services. The new license replaces the current one, and the principal changes are the legal professional fees caps have been reset, the expenses caps have been reset and increased from 5% of the legal fees up to 10% of the legal fees under Parts A and B. Reporting is now due within 14 days of the law firm, legal advisor, counsel or a provider of expenses receiving payment. The reporting requirement makes clear that the relevant letter of engagement sent to OFSI must be unredacted. And the reporting form makes clear that the group ID of the designated person must be provided to OFSI. The licence took effect from one minute past midnight on the 29th of October 2023 and expires at one minute to midnight on the 28th of April 2024, but that it may be varied, revoked or suspended by HM Treasury at any time. Links to the change to the Haiti regime and the new licence relating to legal fees can be found in the podcast description. Five other late pieces of news from Offsea. First, amendments were made to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the DRC, Russian and Iran nuclear sanctions list with the Iranian amendments itself being amended later this week. The DRC additions came following a decision of the Security Council Committee pursuant to Resolution 1533. Links to all amendments, including... The decision of the UN can be found in the podcast description. Secondly, Offsea invites you to attend Understanding Offsea, an introductory webinar on financial sanctions. This is not the first time they've run something such as this. The one-hour webinar is on Thursday the 2nd of November, so not long. It's at 10am in the morning. And the link to the sign-up is in the podcast description. Thirdly, Offsea is conducting its annual Frozen Assets Review, linked to the information in relation to it 
is in the podcast description. It's quite detailed, that information. Fourthly, there's been another amendment, amendment to a general license on continuation of business and basic needs for telecom services and news media services. The link to the amended form is in the podcast description. And finally, there's been another license on legal fees by designated person or the payment of legal fees by designated persons published on the 29th of October but it was actually released by Offsea on Friday the 27th. Anyway the link to that is in the podcast description. Now the final bit of sanctions related news from the United Kingdom this week relates to sanctioned Russian Mikhail Fridman. Now we've mentioned him a few times in previous weeks of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, he seems to have been quite a busy bee. As we reported in last week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, Fridman had brought a judicial review of the decision of the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation to refuse a licence in respect of the maintenance of Athlone House, which is his majestic pile in Highgate, North London. Quite dramatic. I advised you last week to do a Google of it if you haven't seen it before. I did a Google again this week. It's still impressive. The judgment was handed down on the 26th of October and Fridman's claim was dismissed. He had claimed, among other things, £30,000 per month for maintenance of the house. Now, whether he seeks to take action further is not yet known. The link to the judgment of Mr Justice Siney is in the podcast description. In Europe... More reports have filtered out of the European Union concerning the 12th round of sanctions. The European Union's approach to sanctions has a great deal of gaming and the need for agreement across its membership, and expect this round to be no exception. As previously reported in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, the 12th round of sanctions could place limits on the Russian diamond trade, which will need, of course, the Belgians to be firmly on board because of the centrality of the diamond trade to the economy of Antwerp. It will also be the case that there could be further sanctions which would limit the ability of Russia to evade the sanctions by using third countries. They're also looking at enforcement periods as well. So again, Russia still in the focus certainly of the European Union. More to come on that, I'm sure. In the United States, the Department of Justice has filed a civil forfeiture claim in respect of the motor yacht um, Amadea. The yacht, which was seized in 2022 at the request of the United States, is owned by sanctioned Russian oligarch Suleiman Kerimov. The allegation is that the yacht was improved and maintained in violation of sanctions against Kerimov and those acting on his behalf. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. Now, that's it for sanctions news this week. We'll move on to think about money laundering news. We'll start in Germany, where the Federal Financial Supervisory Authority, or BaFin, has issued fines of €170,000 to Deutsche Bank AG for delays in its suspicious transaction reporting submissions. Link to the announcement from BaFin is in the podcast description. In the UK, the Solicitors Regulation Authority has issued a fine against law firm DKLM LLP. The fine of little over £12,000, with the agreement by the firm to pay costs, relates to the conduct of its money laundering 
systems and controls in relation to a land purchase. The transaction involved the firm placing reliance on source of funds and customer due diligence undertaken by a Ukrainian law firm when the transaction ought to have been one which was subjected to enhanced due diligence. The link to the SRA's decision notice is in the podcast description. Now, if money mules float your boat, then this week is your lucky week because the National Crime Agency in the UK has published its SARS in Action magazine, issue 22, which is a special edition on money mules. The activities of money mules in supporting money laundering has been prominent in the news over recent months as banks identify vulnerable customers who may have either unwittingly or otherwise allowed their bank account to be used to facilitate money laundering. So, with content very much along those lines, the special edition will be well worth a read this month. The link is in the podcast description. Now, the Financial Action Task Force, this isn't the first name check that the FATF gets in this edition. First of all, it's published Japan's follow-up report and technical compliance re-rating. Overall, Japan has made progress in addressing technical compliance deficiencies identified in its mutual evaluation report and has been upgraded on the following recommendations. Recommendations 5 and 6 are partially to largely compliant. Recommendation 8 is non-compliant to partially compliant. Recommendations 24 and 28 are from partially compliant to largely compliant. And recommendation 25 is maintained at partially compliant. Japan has four recommendations related compli- uh, rated compliant, 28 recommendations rated largely compliant, and six recommendations rated partially compliant. Japan will report back to the FATF on progress achieved in improving the implementation of its AML and CFT measures in October 2024. Link to the report is in the podcast description. Now, The final money laundering story this week stays on that side of the globe, roughly speaking, and comes from Australia, where the Australian Federal Police has raided the money transfer chain Changjiang Currency Exchange on suspicion that it is the front for a money laundering program estimated at $230 million, presumably Australian dollars, though nobody seemed to be absolutely clear on that. Charges have been brought against a range of individuals in connection with the investigation, and I think it's safe to say we can expect a lot more on this as the investigation continues. Now, that's it for money laundering. As I said, the FATF gets another name check later on in the course of today's episode, but we'll come back to that later. Now, that's it for money laundering, so let's move on to fraud. This week's fraud news starts in the United States and the work of the Oversight Subcommittee hearing on pandemic fraud, which has been hearing what happened and also working towards solutions to see that things like what happened during the pandemic in relation to fraud don't happen again. As the blog post on the committee's work provides, the US Government Accountability Office estimates that instances of fraud in the unemployment insurance program alone have cost as much as $135 billion, while outside experts have estimated that up to $400 billion worth of improper payments may have been made. At a Ways and Means Oversight Subcommittee hearing on pandemic fraud, members looked under the hood 
to learn exactly how criminals, including international criminal enterprises, manage to rob American taxpayers and in some cases steal the identities of program beneficiaries. Link to the post, together with the video content from members across the committee, can be found in the podcast description. In the United Kingdom, there is a mass of fraud news this week. Loads of it. We start with news that, as part of its National Fraud Initiative, NFI, the Cabinet Office has launched a data-sharing counter-fraud pilot involving the National Fraud Initiative, HMRC, which is His Majesty's Revenue and Customs, and English local authorities. Quotes, The pilot aims to improve the effectiveness of the NFI by appending HMRC data focused on household composition, household earnings, and indicators of property ownership to a subset of the NFI records from English local authorities collated by the National Fraud Initiative. The aim of the exercise being to match HMRC records against the personal data records relating to households in order to identify persons at the address as well as relevant income and property ownership related information. Sounds distinctly Orwellian to me. The NFI is of the view that adding HMRC data to that already collated will better protect the public services from fraud and error or by identifying rather more fraud risks. Link to information on the pilot is in the podcast description. In, I suppose, linked data news, the Payment Systems Regulator, the PSR, has issued guidance for Payment Service Providers, or PSPs, which explains the content which must be included as part of the data requirements pursuant to the Authorised Push Payment, or APP, fraud policy statements, which were published in March this year. The data push requires PSPs to publish data on APP fraud, to show fraud levels, fraud prevention rates, and reimbursement levels. According to the press release which accompanied the announcements, this will, first, provide greater transparency about PSP's performance, making them more accountable. Secondly, improve the level of reimbursement for APP fraud victims. Thirdly, create reputational incentives for PSPs to implement further fraud prevention measures. And fourthly, this guidance will assist PSPs in publishing the correct information. Link to the announcement, which contains links to the relevant policy documents, can be found in the podcast description. The other big stories from the UK relate to the worrying scale of the fraud problem. First, UK Finance, which is an industry trade body, a finance industry trade body, has published its half-year fraud report, which measures by data from its members the amounts stolen by fraud and scams in the first half of 2023. The headline figures are that criminals stole £580 million through unauthorised and authorised fraud in the first half of 2023, a 2% decrease compared with the same period in 2022. Banks prevented a further 651 million of unauthorised fraud from being stolen through advanced security systems. And 77% of authorised push payment fraud started online, and another 17% started through telecommunications networks. However, the scale of the problem, and that means the true scale of the problem, may be even greater. 
greater certainly than those figures which are provided by UK Finance if the initiative launched this week by the National Trading Standards Organisation in the UK has any merit within it. The National Trading Standards, or the NTS, has published a survey by organisation, census-wide, which contacted 2,507 nationally representative UK individuals. Now, these were all individuals aged 16+. plus. As the press release provides, 3% of UK adults, although admittedly, if you're over 16, you're not yet an adult, you've still got two years to go if you're 16. But anyway, 3% of UK adults, or 40 million people, um, have been targeted by scams, with 35% or 19 million losing money because of this criminal offence. The average amount lost by victims is £1,730, but fewer than a third, that is 32%, report the crime to the authorities, according to new research, which was released today. So there is a reluctance to report. It continues, despite high numbers of scams and the huge financial and emotional impact on victims, these crimes are severely, severely underreported. NTS's research shows that when people realised they'd become a victim of a scam, the most common feelings were being angry with themselves, 46%, feeling stupid, 40%, and embarrassed, 38%. Fewer than a third, 32%, then reported the crime to an authority such as the police, and 42% did not tell their bank. Two-thirds didn't even tell a relative or a friend they'd become a victim. For those that did report to the authorities, 47% were made to feel stupid or embarrassed. Only 34% felt fully heard and understood, and just 38% felt strongly that their case was taken seriously. Now, this is worrying. If UK finance gives out the data it gives and indicates the scale of fraud in the first half of 2023 to be just over half a billion pounds, but that the NTS is indicating that fraud is underreported, there is a disconnect between the two. We'll never get a true figure, I suppose, but it's not at all surprising that there is a reluctance to report this when it happens. I'll leave that for now. If you want to help out, there is a scheme which has been set up by the National Trading Standards to urge people to talk about being scammed with the hashtag no blame, no shame. The link to the National Trading Standards press release, which contains a mass of relevant links, is available in the podcast description. The best way to prevent fraud is to ensure that you are educated and those whom you love and care for are also sufficiently educated that to be suspicious of everything. Now, this week's fraud news, where does it end? Well, it ends with a further update relating to the Post Office Horizon IT scandal. Now, the Horizon software installation had serious shortcomings for the Post Office and those who worked for the Post Office, which resulted in what has been variously described as the worst sequence of mass miscarriages of justice in the United Kingdom in the last, quarter, uh, in the last century. Over 
700 post office agents were prosecuted for false accounting and theft, and many of those convictions have either been overturned or remain under review. The government has committed to pay postmasters affected by the Horizon scandal quotes, full, fair and prompt compensation. As part of that process this week, the Department for Business and Trade in the United Kingdom has published its response to the interim report of the inquiry set up to examine the scandal. The link to the response can be found in the podcast description. Now, a little bit of bribery and corruption news before I mop up the rest of the relevant financial crime news this week before finishing with the news on cyber attacks. So, bribery and anti-corruption. This week we start in Albania, where the former Prime Minister, Sally Berisha, has been charged with corruption and money laundering and told to report to prosecutors after being linked to a land transaction in Tirana. Berisha's son-in-law, Jamaba Malti, uh, was also arrested on the same charges. Both parties have insisted they are innocent. It's also being reported that the aircraft engine manufacturer Rolls-Royce is being eyed up in a potential claim by investors as the fallout from its legacy bribery and corruption activities, which of course resulted in the company's agreement to a deferred prosecution agreement in 2017, well, we're still feeling the legacy of that. It seems that some investors are disgruntled with that near half a billion pound DPA. The reports that have been across various newswires this week suggest that discontented investors are looking to claw back some of their losses as a result of the impact the share price on the share price which the DPA had. Interesting to see where this goes, and certainly one worth following. The link to the 2017 press release from the Serious Fraud Office website which announced the original deferred prosecution agreement which was agreed with Rolls-Royce is in the podcast description if you want to refresh your memory of that, but certainly it's worth keeping tabs on what's going on there. Now, a bit of a mop-up of some general, I suppose, money, uh, general financial crime news before we finish this week's episode with our delve into cyber attack news. On the 26th of October, Thursday, in the UK, the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill received the Royal Assent, which is the final stage in the United Kingdom before a bill becomes an act. The UK government's press release said of the event, the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act introduces world-leading powers which will allow UK authorities proactively to target organised criminals and others seeking to abuse the UK's open economy. Companies House will receive enhanced abilities to verify the identities of company directors, remove fraudulent organisations from the company register and share information with criminal investigation agencies. Law enforcement agencies will benefit from greater powers to seize, freeze and recover crypto assets, while groundbreaking legal reforms will allow the courts to dismiss spurious lawsuits which seek to stifle freedom of speech, those so anti-slap measures. Prosecutors will better be able to hold large comp corporations accountable for malpractice. Now, there's a lot of fluff in that government statement, 
But I think the flagship things are that it introduces the strict liability offence of failure to prevent fraud, and that is in section 199 of the Act. And that is modelled on the failure to prevent bribery offence, which can be found in section 7 of the Bribery Act 2010. The new statute also broadens the identification principle, which is the significantly problematic feature of corporate criminal liability in English law. Link to the Parliament website, the UK Government press release, together with a link to the new statute, can be found in the podcast description. Now, in other financial crime news this week, the UK Government has given its response to the review which has been undertaken by the Law Commission of England and Wales into Part 2 of the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, otherwise known as POCA. This relates to recommendations for reform of the confiscation regime in England and Wales. The link to the response is in the podcast description. Now, it's interesting that the government should have been thinking about the reform of confiscation in England and Wales because a story which crept just under the wire towards the end of the week. It's our name check of the Financial Action Task Force again, which I promised earlier in the podcast. It's announced the outcomes from its plenary, which happened the 25th to the 27th of October. Now, among the announcements is a strategic initiative to improve asset recovery by the revision of recommendations to the FAT F40, which relate to that issue. As the press release provides... At this plenary, delegates agreed on major amendments to the FATF recommendations that will provide countries with enhanced tools to more effectively freeze, seize and confiscate criminal property both domestically and through international cooperation. The revised recommendations require countries to have policies and operational frameworks that prioritise asset recovery and established non-conviction-based confiscation regimes in their legal systems. They also provide new features such as the power to suspend transactions related to money laundering, terrorist financing and serious crime. This will allow relevant national authorities to secure criminal assets more swiftly, increasing the chances of successful confiscation and potential recovery for victims. The government, the UK government, was quick to claim its influence in this revision and pumped out its own press release late on Friday evening. Links to the FATF announcement and the UK government's press release on the same ground can be found in the podcast description. Now we end this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast with our usual jaunt around cyber attack news. We don't start this week's cyber attack news with anything specific, but with unsurprising news of the scale of reports coming out of the conflict in Israel and Gaza. As I indicated recently, while the conventional military activity will always take the main headlines, the consistent theme of the stories is the second front which has been opened principally against Israel in the form of a cyber war. This is, or so it would seem, the way of the world now when it comes to conflict. As the conventional battle lines are drawn, the cyber battle lines are opened alongside. It has happened by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We've seen it there. 
and now we've seen it in the Middle East. This is the new normal, and certainly we can expect that in any areas where there is any kind of military conflict in the world, there will be a cyber conflict alongside it. Now to the United States, where the Federal Trade Commission has submitted two reports to Congress, quotes detailing the agency's efforts to combat cross-border fraud and work contributing to the fight against ransomware and other cyber attacks that originate outside the United States. The first report provides an update on the Federal Trade Commission's efforts to implement the undertaking spam, spyware and fraud enforcement with Enforcers Beyond Borders Act, awful statute name, or the US Safe Web Act. The second report addresses questions about the Federal Trade Commission's activities concerning China, Russia, North Korea and Iran, and the Federal Trade Commission's efforts to combat ransomware, which is a type of cyber-related attack in which bad actors hold data or computer access hostage until they receive payment and other types of cyber attack. Link to the press release, which contains links to both reports, can be found in the podcast description. Now, in news of an update to a cyber attack, which we reported in an earlier episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, it's that the International Criminal Court has provided further information on the cyber attack to which it was subject earlier this month. As the press release provides, the ICC has made various and serious efforts to address this attack. As soon as the incident was confirmed, steps were taken to mitigate its effects by initiating an immediate incident response with the support of the Netherlands and external cybersecurity experts. This included forensic analysis of the incident, its causes and its impact, and initial mitigating measures. The initial evidence indicates a targeted and sophisticated attack with the objective of espionage and a serious attempt to undermine the court's mandate. However, a perpetrator has not yet been identified, so the investigation continues in that regard. Frankly, I think we all have our suspicions about this one. Link to the ICC press release is in the podcast description. The FBI in the US has issued a warning that the North Korean regime has trained IT workers to infiltrate organizations around the world. The applicants make legitimate applications for vacant positions in order to get inside organizations before acting against its interests. As a tactic, this is very savvy, and firms, systems and controls need to be sufficiently agile to respond to the threat. Now, the World Economic Forum uh, came out this week to highlight news that some of the major tech companies around the world are currently in an ongoing struggle to fight off a large-scale and global distributed denial-of-service attack, a DDoS attack, as they're sometimes known. This attack started in August. Now, Google has said that this attack is seven and a half times the size of the one which was previously initiated. Now, that was in 2022. Tech companies are, quotes, warning Internet users that these types of attacks could cause widespread disruption unless cybersecurity measures are stepped up. Link to the World Economic Forum website is in the podcast description. Now, we're nearly there. Well done if you've stuck for it, stuck with it for this long. There was an indication this week of the scale of the problem 
which is facing us when it comes to cyber attacks. There have been a couple of industry reports published which should be a bit eye-opening, and if you work in the sector then it certainly should sharpen your focus. First, the NCC Group has released its monthly Threat Pulse report, indicating a 153% increase in ransomware attacks, with the US and Canada at the top of the list and Europe second. The other report is from BT, the telecoms provider in the United Kingdom, which indicators, indicates that there are more than 46 million potential cyber attack signals identified by cybersecurity professionals daily. That is a staggering 532 every second. That's the scale of the problem and it isn't going away. And indeed you might wonder whether it's going to get worse as I look at the final story in this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. It's a bit of a portent of doom as we hurtle into a new working week, but the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology in the United Kingdom has published a discussion paper on the capabilities and risks of artificial intelligence in which it highlights the possibility that artificial intelligence could increase the risk of cyber attacks and erode general confidence in online content. Quotes, AI may help bad actors to perform cyber attacks, run disinformation campaigns and design biological or chemical weapons and will almost certainly continue to lower the barriers to entry for less sophisticated threat actors. The report is an interesting, if not at least in part, wholly dispiriting read, and the link to it is in the podcast description. Now, that's it for this week's mammoth episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being very well indeed, next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.